Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, January 14th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Iowa banks intensify their connections with fintechs by Joe Guardias. As a key leader of several successful financial technology companies, Ryan Hildebrand has pioneered fintech platforms that are now used by leading banks across the United States as well as Europe. Last fall, Lincoln Savings Bank recruited Hildebrand to join the Cedar Falls-based bank to lead its fintech partnership group, known as LSBX Financial Technologies, and serve in a newly created role as Strategic Innovation Officer for Lincoln Savings. With years of both banking and fintech experience, Hildebrand aims to build strong connections between fintech banking and community banking, two formerly separate technology worlds that are increasingly building partnerships and together launching new innovative products. Hildebrand, who has an accounting degree from Oregon State University and began his career as an auditor for PricewaterhouseCoopers, most recently was Senior Vice President of FinTech Banking for Cross River Bank, a New Jersey-based bank that has been a leading adopter of FinTech innovation. He joined Cross River in 2019 when the bank acquired Seed, the digital banking FinTech company that he co-founded. With Lincoln Savings, he will work remotely from his 75-acre ranch that's located about 30 minutes from Portland, Oregon, with frequent visits to Iowa. To support its continuing growth in fintech and digital banking, Lincoln Savings recently hired a chief risk officer, as well as a new product manager for digital banking, who will work remotely from New York and New Jersey, respectively. Hildebrand has an Iowa-based team of about 10 people who work directly for him, with additional hiring planned. From his experience as an entrepreneur and then working for an innovative bank, he said speed is what makes for an effective fintech partnership. I think it's really the ability to move fast, Hildebrand said. I think fintechs move so fast and they need partners to be able to move fast with them. And I think that's really the opportunity, he said. At Cross River, Hildebrand cultivated partnerships with popular fintech platforms, among them Coinbase, Affirm, Stripe, and Plaid. Lincoln Savings Bank already has some existing fintech partnerships with Capital, Acorns, and M1 Finance. There are still lots of opportunities to be a great partner to fintechs out there, Hildebrand said. When Lincoln Savings and Cross River got into this fintech partnership business, there were probably 10 active partnerships around the country. Now there are probably 75 to 100 that are really playing it, and you've got to imagine that it's going to double or triple in the future. So I think the way these partner banks can do well is really build the foundation to build a solid risk, compliance, and operational process to be able to move quickly with fintechs, he said. Lincoln Savings Bank's digital transformation journey is similar to the path being taken by banks and credit unions across the country and in Iowa, said Ron Shevlin, a banking management consultant in Boston, 
and Director of Research with Cornerstone Advisors in Scottsdale, Arizona. Shevlin spoke earlier this year during the Iowa Bankers Association annual conference. For a number of years, he has conducted a national survey of bank and credit union executives for an annual What's Going On in Banking report that includes data on digital transformation and the emerging world of fintech partnerships. For the past couple years, I've asked that question, and the percentage of banks who say that they have a digital transformation strategy or initiative or platform is absolutely huge, Shevlin said. It's close to 9 out of 10 banks that, they, that say they have something, but it's all over the map in terms of what they actually do. Under the banner, for many of them, it truly is about digitizing business processes and client interfaces and things like that. But for others, it's treated more culturally, that they want more of a digital mindset, he said. When asked specifically whether they have partnered with fintech startups, roughly half, 48%, of banks and about 4 in 10, 42%, of credit unions say they have entered partnerships over the past three years, according to Shevlin's most recent survey, the 2021 Outlook, published in January 2021. I think it's important for banks to understand there are different types of fintech partnerships, Shevlin said. There are those that help the bank improve internal capabilities and processes. So banks often say, yes, they're partnering with fintechs for digital accounting. In some respects, it's a total misnomer. They use the term partnership, but it's really a vendor relationship, he said. The second type of partnership is when banks integrate a fintech company's products into their own platforms. We're seeing this a lot more with banks who are turning to companies that provide let's say, data breach and identity protection services that will be integrated into the mobile banking platform or services that help consumers manage all the subscriptions that they have or even manage things like cell phone damage, protection, and other things, Shevlin said. Increasingly, there's a third type of partnership often referred to as banking as a service where non-bank companies such as Chime are partnering with banks which have the banking license, compliance services, and technology that are needed. This is really a growing area from a partnership perspective, Shevlin said. I have a report coming out next month that basically says that a mid-sized bank could generate about $50 million in revenue on an annual basis from providing these kinds of services. And if you're a billion-dollar to $5 billion asset bank, that's nothing to sneeze at. Neither the Iowa Division of Banking nor the Iowa Bankers Association had state-specific data on fintech partnership trends in Iowa, but the business record reached out to some additional bankers for their perspectives. Don Coffin, CEO and president of Bankers Trust in Des Moines, said his bank has, quote, invested significantly, end quote, over the last few years in technology, both in digital banking tools for customers and in internal solutions, with plans to continue those investments into 2022 and beyond. For example, he said, 
On the commercial and treasury side, we are in the process of implementing a new digital commercial loan servicing tool and upgrading our customer onboarding platform. Our consumer team rolled out a new digital budgeting tool early in 2021, and next year we'll enhance the online account opening experience and launch a new digital person-to-person -person payment feature. And we continuously make upgrades to our internet and mobile banking platforms, he said. Because Bankers Trust covers a wide range of financial needs, from retail checking and savings accounts, to large commercial loans, to complex wealth planning, the bank takes a decentralized approach to innovation, Coffin noted. This empowers individual departments to find and implement solutions that make sense for their business lines, he said. We've seen great success in this approach with how teams are finding ways to streamline processes, improve customer experience, and enhance our offerings through technology, new products, and more. Another Iowa-based bank, Midwest One Bank, has tentative plans to add a new Chief Innovation Officer position within the next year, said Midwest One's Chief Information Officer, John Hank. Based in Iowa City, Midwest One has 60 locations across Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Colorado, and Florida. In terms of a concerted effort toward, di toward digitization, We've had a defined effort that's been put together for probably the last three or four years, Hank said. Part of my role is our customer-facing technology, but also our infrastructure and all the components that go into that ability to keep us up and operational. That's a very different skill area, so we are probably looking at breaking that out so we have a position focusing just on customer-facing technology, he said. Midwest One has had a fintech committee made up of senior officers who are focused on monitoring trends and changes in the regulatory environment regarding technology. With that, the bank has probably 13 technology initiatives that are either in the implementation stage or the evaluation stage, so there's quite a bit that's on our roadmap, Hank said. One of the most significant initiatives involves a partnership with a fintech company to build an artificial intelligence-powered sales lead and prospect tool, he said. The goal of that is to really provide real-time information on sales leads and opportunities that we can utilize at the point of contact with a customer to meet their needs. That isn't pushing product as much as it is using data that we currently have on hand to offer solutions that are going to benefit the customer, he said. Another important fintech connection for Midwest One is its role as a funding partner with NYCA Partners, a New York City-based venture capital firm. They invest in companies where technology is really a competitive distinction, Hank said. That helps us by leveraging the expertise of their limited partner advisors to help identify solutions and identify potential companies that we could partner with. We just got started with it this year and are just kind just getting it kicked off, but we feel, based on the meetings we've been involved with, that it will really help us enhance our technology roadmap. Keeping up with such a wide array of emerging technologies is Really drinking from a fire hose, Hank said. 
There are so many different options out there, and of course, resources are limited, he said. We're trying to be as targeted as we can and focus on those things that, number one, improve customer experience, and also improve efficiency and allow us to make better decisions. That's what we're trying to balance as we look at the opportunities out there. Shevlin, the Cornerstone Advisors consultant, said changes in consumer behavior driven by the pandemic didn't necessarily accelerate the pace of digital transformation efforts by banks. From his perspective, it certainly accelerated digital adoption by over 50 consumers who previously weren't large users of mobile banking. Digital adoption by baby boomers has doubled from about 30% to upwards of 60% during the pandemic. So that's huge, and that's not going away at all, he said. People get used to the tools. The research that Shevlin has done on banking customer preferences for handling various types of interactions, such as resolving a disputed fee or reporting potential fraudulent activity, shows that customers really have no channel preferences. What they prefer is to get the job done in the easiest way possible at that particular point in time, he said. So if they're walking down the street during the day and they see the branch is empty and they realize they had a question, they'll go in. There's no line, they're right there. But if it's 11 at night and they realize, I forgot to do this transaction, I'm going to log into my account and do it that way. So banks are wrestling not just with digitization, but also with the proliferation of contact points that consumers can have, he said. While most financial institutions begin their digital transformation and fintech journey on the consumer side of the business, there are significant opportunities ahead on the commercial side. Lincoln Savings Bank's Hildebrand said he views consumer banking as the first wave in fintech partnerships. I think there's a huge opportunity on the business banking and commercial side, he said. Lincoln Savings, while it does have a retail presence, has been a commercial bank for the last 120 years. So that's also where the opportunity lies in the future from the fintech perspective. From a Q&A with Don Coffin, President and CEO of Bankers Trust. We asked Bankers Trust President and CEO Don Coffin for his thoughts about how banking technology advances are shaping the industry and the operations at Bankers Trust. These are excerpts from responses that he provided by email. Question. To what extent has the pandemic affected the direction and intensity of tech investments? Answer. The pandemic reiterated the importance of putting customers first and adapting as best as possible to serve their needs. We conducted customer focus groups earlier this year directly from our customers on their banking habits and technology preferences. Many retail banking customers increased their use of banking technology, such as mobile deposits and online bill pay due to and during the pandemic. Our research showed that many of our customers who started using these digital banking tools during the pandemic will continue, and others have already returned to banking in person. So it's a balance of ensuring we offer digital banking tools that are easy and convenient to use, 
and continuing to provide the excellent in-person service we're known for. On the Treasury side, we saw double-digit growth in customers using electronic payments in the last year, and we know this will continue in 2022. We invest in technology that helps ensure businesses' payments are made securely and on time, which we did before the pandemic as well. However, I do believe the pandemic accelerated how we have scaled our back-end processes to coincide with this growth. Question. What types of banking technology advances have been the most significant in the past two or three years, and what are you most excited about on the horizon? The most significant types of banking technology advances are those that enhance a customer's banking experience, those that make it easier or more convenient to handle a customer's banking needs whenever and wherever they are. It's more than one or two things that have been the most significant or exciting. It's a lot of small things that add up when you put them together. Anything that makes banking easier, whether that's for a consumer or commercial customer, that's what's most impactful. Is the bank developing its own technology solutions? Partnering with fintech strategic partners or both? Are fintech's applications collaborating with banks more than they are competing with them? Both. Because we regularly seek input from our customers regarding the types of banking technology they're interested in, we can proactively evaluate our options for finding the right solution. Much of the time, we work with strategic partners to leverage existing products. However, our technology team also works to ensure that the bank has a technology architecture that enables us to plug and play with these partners and other vendor tools. As for collaboration versus competition, I think it depends on the company. Some fintechs are created in response to consumer frustration, and their purpose is to compete with financial institutions. Others are created out of similar pain points, but have been developed specifically to offer their services to banks. With the latter, consumers win all around because they get the benefits of an innovative solution and the stability of an established financial institution. This week's feature story from the Fearless column. This is hope like we've never seen before. An in-depth look at the Child Care Task Force recommendations, what they address, and what was left out. By Emily Kestel, Fearless Editor. An editor's note. This is the second and final part of a series on the issue of child care in the state. In this article, we detail the governor's Child Care Task Force recommendations, which were released to the public in November. The first part, which ran in the January 7th edition, illustrated how a shortage of child care workers and a lack of available slots in the state are affecting other areas of the economy. Let's say you have a baby. You're lucky to be employed by a company that offers a few weeks of paid parental leave. But when your infant is six weeks old, you have to return to work. Your partner also has to go back to work, so you must find childcare. The trouble is, there aren't any providers within a 10-mile radius that can take your baby, so you have to look in a neighboring city. 
You eventually find one, but it's going to cost you about $200 per week, or more than $10,000 per year. There's no choice but to pay it. You have to work. Eight months later, the provider calls you with some bad news. She's very sorry, but she's quitting and closing her business. She loves your child and loves what she does, but can no longer survive making just $25,000 a year. For years, this has been the reality for thousands of parents and providers. Child care advocates have long pleaded for solutions, but until recently, they weren't getting anywhere. Child care is a family issue. It's not our responsibility, policymakers would imply, until the pandemic. What was a simmering crisis suddenly began boiling over. Iowa lost nearly a third of its child care slots, which created a loss of revenue for providers and reduced availability for the children of essential workers who didn't have the privilege of staying at home. The Economic Recovery Advisory Board, assembled by Governor Kim Reynolds in June 2020 to identify solutions for the state's recovery from the pandemic, concluded that priority number one should be addressing the child care crisis. Out of that recommendation, the Child Care Task Force was created less than a year later, tasked with developing, quote, a comprehensive strategy to address Iowa's child care crisis, which would be used as a foundation for potential action by the governor, legislature, communities, and employers to reduce both short and long-term barriers, end quote. Leaders in the areas of nonprofit and community-based organizations, child care development homes and centers, municipal governments, state government agencies, chambers of commerce, and various industries in the private sector, including banking, agriculture, and construction, were appointed to serve on the task force. A list of the 18 people who served as members of the task force and also served in one or more working groups met weekly through Zoom. Working group focuses were to increase employer investment and engagement opportunities in child care, deal with regulatory barriers and financing options, expand eligibility for child care assistance, and deal with child care workforce issues. The People on the task force, Chair Emily Schmidt of Sukup Manufacturing, Jennifer Banta, the Iowa City Area Business Partnership, Lisa Gates from Friendship Village, Miranda Neimi, Quality Beginnings, David Ahrens with Wells Fargo, now Private Wealth Asset Management, Philip Herman with Highland Park Community Development Association, Mary Jansen of Child Care Resources and Referral of Northeast Iowa, Dawn Oliver Wyand with the Iowa Women's Foundation, Diana Williams and Wickman Child Care Center, YMCA, Erica Fuentes with Crittenton Center, Terry Caldwell-Johnson with the Oak Ridge Neighborhood, Roy Buell, Mayor of Dubuque, Josh Larrabee, Fairfield Economic Development Association, Jenna Ramsey of Stanton Community Development, Amy Bice, Child Development Home Provider in Cherokee. Raven Walker, a Child Development Home Provider in Council Bluffs. 
Tessa Dinsdale of Lincoln Savings Bank, who's now at Security National Bank, and Jean Newgard, the mayor of Iowa Falls. There were additional 55 people who were not members of the task force, but sat in the working groups. Iowa Workforce Development Executive Director Beth Townsend served as an advisor to the task force and sat on several working groups. She stressed the need for a systemic approach to addressing the child care crisis. This is not a single issue issue. It's got multiple factors in play and it's going to take multiple responses to fix it, she said. At the first meeting of the task force in April, Janie Harvey, a division administrator for Adult Children and Family Services at Iowa DHS, implored the task force to think big. We did not want them to feel limited, Harvey said. We wanted the task force members to think outside of the box, be innovative, and look to other states. What would have the most profound effect on the providers, workforce, and the families who access the child care entities, she said. Emily Schmidt, Chief Administrative Officer and General Counsel at Sukup Manufacturing, chaired the task force. She stressed the need for recommendations that would last. We need to make things sustainable for childcare. We can't keep having things swaying back and forth. It needs to be consistent throughout the years, Schmidt said. The task force developed numerous recommendations This next section details those recommendations. First, business coordination. Through a partnership with the Iowa Economic Development Authority, create a full-time position for someone who would serve as a navigator to help businesses, employers, advocates, and communities understand solutions to child care found in the Iowa Women's Foundation Business Solutions Toolkit. In 2020, the Iowa Women's Foundation formed the Iowa Business and Child Care Coalition to address the workforce gap caused by the lack of child care. They created a 28-page toolkit containing, quote, solutions to help businesses address the various ways in which a lack of child care affects workforce participation, end quote. The six solutions included in the toolkit are flexible work arrangements, flexible spending accounts, subsidized child care, backup child care, on-site child care, and off-site child care or nearby partnerships. A lot of people will tell you that if businesses would just write a check, that'll solve all of the problems. No, that's not what this is about. This is about viable solutions that a business can look at and investments they can make to really make a difference, said Don Oliver Wyand, president and CEO of the Iowa Women's Foundation. Oliver Wyand said she's excited about the creation of the position and hopes it'll be up and running as soon as possible. She added that the Iowa Economic Development Authority has released the request for proposal for the position and the Iowa Women's Foundation will have to apply, but it's not certain that it will be awarded the contract. Next recommendation Business slots. Establish a tax credit program that would incentivize employers to purchase available openings at a nearby child care center as a benefit to its employees. 
The employee would cover some, if not all, of the cost of the slots that they use, while the employer would cover the cost of unused slots, so the provider would still maintain a stable funding stream. Several employers are already doing this, the report noted. In Atumwa, JBS USA, and Swift Prepared Foods partnered with the local YMCA to fund its child care renovation and expansion project in return for affordable child care for their company's employees. JBS contributed $600,000 toward the project and will receive 40 discounted slots at the updated facility. Pella Corporation partnered with New Horizons Academy to remodel an existing child care center to create a capacity for 214 children, expanding the availability of child care in the community by 43%. Pella Corp plans to reserve a limited number of spots and is exploring the potential for discounted rates for the children of its employees. Erica Fuentes, director of child development programs at the Crittenton Center in Sioux City, said she's excited about this recommendation. I've always said to my team, how would I ever expect you to take care of other people's children if you can't take care of your own? So to apply that to a business, how can I ask you to be doing a job when I'm not even helping you care for your family? That's part of taking care of each other, Fuentes said. Next recommendation, business investment credits. Create an Iowa child care investment tax credit program that would make businesses eligible for a 20% refundable tax credit for investing in the construction or acquisition of a nonprofit child care center that would be used by its employees. It would also give businesses a 5% refundable tax credit for the annual cost of providing child care to the employee's children. The report notes that in South Carolina, businesses are eligible for a tax credit equal to 50% of the cost of establishing or operating a child care facility for its employees, ranging from mortgage or lease payments to equipment costs, building improvements, and donations to nonprofit organizations. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, January 14th, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. I'll continue with our story on the Iowa Child Care Task Force recommendations. The next recommendation, property tax parity. Create a subcategory of commercial property for child care centers that would treat them the same as residential in-home care operations. Currently, child care centers are considered commercial property for tax reasons, while in-home providers are considered residential property. This recommendation would treat the two the same for the purposes of applying assessment limitations, lowering the property tax burden for center providers. That was something we heard loud and clear, that they wanted to be considered a lower property tax value, Schmidt said. Vicki Brandenburg is the owner of Lionheart Kids in Iowa City. She did not sit on the task force, but said she's hopeful this recommendation will become a reality. I've been saying for a long time that early childhood should have reduced property taxes. This is the first time that I've heard it at the state government level, she said. Vacant school rehabilitation is the next recommendation. 
create a pilot project led by the Iowa Economic Development Authority that would transform vacant school buildings into child care centers. As of spring 2021, Iowa school districts reported at least 49 vacant school buildings, 15 of them being in suitable condition to be turned into child care centers with the upper floors used for housing or small businesses. The report noted, quote, School buildings are a natural fit for child care since they are already designed for children, and reusing vacant school buildings is a cost-effective way to provide space for child care centers in rural Iowa, end quote. The next recommendation, a child care challenge fund. Support and continuously review the child care challenge fund to increase the availability of child care slots. Through a partnership with Iowa Workforce Development and the Iowa Department of Human Services, Iowa launched the Child Care Challenge Fund in January 2021 to aid in the construction of new child care facilities or renovation and expansion of existing structures. The fund matches private investment dollar for dollar and helps close fundraising gaps to start projects. In its initial round, the initiative doled out $13 million in grants to more than 60 providers. Reynolds has announced the state will channel another $10 million to the 2022 Child Care Challenge Fund. While many providers expressed gratitude for the fund, some want to see more state investments in programs that already exist. I wish there was more money for building out or reinforcing and reinvesting in existing centers. I think it's great that we're investing in new development, but to me, existing centers are the bread and butter of the industry right now, Terry Caldwell-Johnson, CEO of the Oak Ridge Neighborhood, said. Iowa was allocated $200 million from the American Rescue Plan in 2021 to provide stabilization grants to licensed centers and in-home providers to help support personnel and equipment costs, as well as paying the rent or mortgage. Programs that can prove they've suffered a financial loss due to the pandemic or have at least 25% of their children on child care assistance are eligible. Funding amounts range from $20.30 to $44.02 per child per day for the initial three-month period of the award. Applications are expected to open in January 2022. The stabilization grant is coming about a year too late, Brandenburg said, saying other states released similar grants months ago. I've heard Iowa wanted to be very intentional about what they were doing with the grant, but the fact is programs need help now. Brandenburg also raised concerns about the eligibility requirements for the stabilization grant. There are programs I've talked to that won't qualify because they made cuts to try and stay open, so they didn't lose money, she said. The next recommendation, sales and use tax exemption. Create a sales and use tax exemption on the building materials used for the construction or expansion of licensed child care centers, which would lower construction costs. Iowa law allows contractors to purchase building materials for construction contracts with state agencies and other exempt entities without paying sales and use tax on them, the report read. Best Places for Working Parents 
is the next recommendation. Implement an initiative that would designate the best place for working parents in the state. The policies reviewed for the designation would include paid health care, paid time off, paid parental leave, on-site child care, child care assistance, backup child care, flexible hours, remote work opportunities, and lactation benefits. The Best Place for Working Parents initiative was created by the Miles Foundation in Texas. The foundation found that businesses that provided child care for their employees decreased job turnover by 60%. Reynolds has indicated that Iowa will begin recognizing businesses with this designation beginning in January 2022. The next recommendation, shared services. Develop a model that would allow child care providers to access a statewide online partnership platform for support on various business operations like payroll, retirement benefits, and group purchasing for insurance. The report notes that 32 states and Washington, D.C. have already incorporated a shared services initiative. Several task force members said this recommendation was one that they were most excited about, saying that it opens opportunities for more resources. Harvey said the state is, quote, aggressively pursuing how it can use shared services, calling this recommendation a, quote, big ticket item. This is going to make doing childcare so much easier for the people who do it. It's hard not to be really excited about it, she said. Raven Walker, an in-home provider in Council Bluffs, is hoping that through this recommendation, a substitute pool can be created similar to what K-12 schools use. Home providers can't afford to keep extra staff on retainer just to cover ratios if somebody calls in sick, she said. Reynolds indicated in a press release that Iowa is moving forward with making this recommendation a reality, saying that the system will be available in 2022. Next, fire and safety code requirements. Create a transparent and consistent policy for fire and safety code requirements in child care settings. All structures must adhere to state fire and safety codes, but municipalities are given leeway to add to the fire code to make it more restrictive, said Dave Ahrens, founding partner at Private Wealth Asset Management. For example, that could mean it would be more difficult to open a center in Johnson County than neighboring Lynn County. Next, child care assistance. Provide more flexibility in child care assistance program requirements to help more working families and providers. The topic of child care assistance has been hotly debated in recent legislative sessions. Currently, the initial eligibility level to qualify for child care assistance is 145% of the federal poverty level or an annual income of $25,259 for a single parent with one child or $38,425 for a family of four. The Iowa legislature passed a bill last year that addressed the child care cliff, which is when families start to lose assistance because they make too much money to qualify. Now, families that make between 145% and 250% of the federal poverty level still receive benefits 
though they begin to phase out once the 225% threshold is reached. In fiscal year 2021, 31,152 children from 16,652 families received child care assistance. For many providers, though, accepting children on child care assistance can be a gamble because doing so instantly causes them to lose money. Providers that accept kids on child care assistance currently receive a reimbursement rate ranging from the 50th to 75th percentile of the 2020 market rate survey, depending on the type of program, age of child, and the program's quality rating, the report states. Data from the 2020 market rate survey showed that the 75th percentile of half-day rates ranged from $12.50 to $23.21 per half-day. Brandenburg said she calculated that if she took an infant on child care assistance versus an infant with a private pay parent, she would lose $500 a month. Walker likens it to selling a house. If you get a cash offer offer versus a loan offer on your house, you're going to take the cash offer because it gives you more consistency, she said. Furthermore, when a child receiving assistance is absent, providers are only paid through the state for up to four days a month. If the child is absent for more days, they aren't paid for them. The task force therefore recommended an increase in allowable reimbursed absence days. In November, on November 1, 2021, DHS began using funding from the American Rescue Plan to increase the number of absent days from four to six per month. The change will be effective through September 30, 2023. As of July 2021, according to CCR&R data, out of 4,961 child care programs surveyed, 68% reported that they were willing to discuss accepting kids on child care assistance. Brandenburg said many providers, though, only accept child care assistance for their employees or cap the limit of kids on child care assistance to 20% of their total enrollment. She believes increasing the DHS subsidy rate would get more programs to accept childcare assistance. Jennifer Banta, Vice President of Community Engagement and Advocacy at the Iowa City Area Business Partnership, believes childcare assistance should be expanded. The cost of childcare is going up so much faster than wages are going up, we need to really think about who can participate and expand that, she said. Many child care advocates are pushing for a maximum initial eligibility of 185% of the federal poverty level, or $32,227 for a single parent with one child, or $49,025 for a family of four. The next recommendation, blended child care and education. Blend child care and preschool options, which would expand early learning opportunities. In 2007, Iowa launched its state-funded preschool program for four-year-olds, which provides at least 10 hours a week of instruction. Iowa spends about $86 million each year on the program, yet only 55% of Iowa's four-year-old children attended in 2020. 
Education leaders say enrollment numbers are that low because of space constraints and complications for parents who may need to keep their kids in a full-time childcare setting due to work schedules. Blending childcare and preschool would help address those barriers, the report stated. Reynolds said that through elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds, the Iowa Department of Education is making $100,000 in grants available for blended childcare and preschool programs. The next recommendation, child care enrollment hub. Develop a centralized online hub where parents can quickly and easily find information about child care facilities, openings, enrollment, and tours. Currently, updates on child care openings are available through a DHS portal that's dependent on regular data inputs from providers, which often leads to incomplete or outdated information. The task force said that through the central information system, Iowa should explore technology that would allow for updates in real time. The enrollment hub will be a big assistance, Schmidt said. Next, Workforce Education Compensation Continue to support workforce education opportunities while leveraging new ones to help fill the gap for those interested in pursuing the child care profession. This would include TEACH, a scholarship program that provides access to discounted education and counseling support, and WAGES, which provides salary supplements to those in the early education and child care workforce based on their level of education. Those with a master's or doctorate degree with at least 24 early childhood credits can earn up to $5,250 a year through WAGES. In the last three years, TEACH has supported more than 1,100 early childhood professionals. The retention rate for wages participants in Iowa is 84%, according to DHS data. In June, Reynolds announced that DHS will use federal funding to expand the programs through fiscal year 2022. Brandenburg said that in theory, wages sounds great, but because it's only available to those with some level of education beyond high school, it leaves out people who don't want to continue their education. If you're a person who's been in childcare for ever and a day and you're 50 years old and don't want to go back to school, you don't qualify for that stipend, Brandenburg said. The task force looked recommended that the state look at new opportunities to enhance workforce recruitment efforts, which include tuition assistance for those interested in pursuing a career a career in early childhood education, as long as they commit to work in the field for a certain number of years, work-study programs that would allow high school students to earn credits toward an early childhood education degree, and a registered apprentice program. Central Campus in Des Moines is one example of a school that has a program that prepares high school students to work in the field of early childhood education. Child care providers have made it clear that there's a need to professionalize the child care field. Until we treat this profession like professionals, we are going to have a really hard time getting people to join this career path and continue to develop their skills. One of the things that we talked about so much during the task force was having pride in your work 
and we need to make child care professionals feel proud of the work that they do, Banta said. Angela Lynch is a longtime early childhood educator and a board member of Early Childhood Iowa. She did not sit on the task force, but stressed the importance of early childhood education. For the majority of child care workers, the only education required, beyond training like CPR, child abuse reporter training, and first aid, is a high school diploma, Lynch said. Teachers, however, are often required to have an early childhood endorsement or similar education. Ratio requirements is the next recommendation. Re-examine staffing restrictions and the child-to-staff ratios to determine whether regulatory changes should be made. The state's child-to-staff ratio guidelines require that one adult must be present for every four children aged six weeks to 18 months. The ratio increases to one adult for six children aged 35 months, one to eight for three-year-olds, one to 12 for four-year-olds, and one to 15 for five-year-olds. Currently, Iowa's licensing standards require child care workers to be at least 16 years old or work under the direct supervision of someone who is at least 18. Harvey said the task force talked about allowing 15-year-olds to count as a full staff member and not be directly supervised, as well as increasing the number of kids per staff, though they were adamant that both ideas would not be rolled out at the same time. Aarons said this recommendation was debated. I'm not a fan of monkeying with ratios, Aarons said. When you reduce the number of adults responsible for the kids in the room, it can be a health issue and an education issue. The task force also listed 12, quote, just do it recommendations, which were defined as quote, common sense process initiatives that the state can put in place with relative ease, end quote. The Just Do It recommendations included implementing a child care workforce sign-on and retention bonus structure through DHS, creating a workforce pipeline, streamlining federal background checks, encouraging hospitals and medical facilities to provide child care information to new parents, re-examining the quality rating system, and setting up lending libraries to share tangible resources like books and videos. What was left out? Many task force members felt as though the recommendations that made it into the final report were a good start, though more is needed. Aarons referred to the task force recommendations as, quote, a spark we need to turn into a real strong flame. End quote. Several task force members, as well as providers who did not serve on the task force, expressed concerns about the lack of recommendations that addressed the workforce crisis, particularly regarding wages and benefits. We didn't go as deep and as wide as we could have in the discussions about workforce, workforce development, professionalism of the industry, and professional development and retention and recruitment, Caldwell Johnson said. Miranda Naimi, executive director of Collins Aerospace Day Academy, pointed out that when the task force submitted the recommendations back in July, the workforce shortage, quote, hadn't even gotten that bad yet, 
end quote. The recommendations that we put out were like, okay, great, these are really going to help. There's some things for the workforce, but there's not a whole lot, Naimi said. That's because our workforce tanked after the recommendations were given to the governor. Childcare workers in Iowa make an average of $10.18 per hour, or $21,170 per year. Low wages and lack of benefits have recently driven childcare workers out of the industry. U.S. Labor Department data shows that the child care services industry nationwide is still down more than 100,000 workers compared with pre-pandemic levels. Many people interviewed also mentioned that child care workers could go down the street and work at places like Target, Walmart, or a fast food restaurant and make more money. You can go to Taco John's and make $15 an hour and you're not worrying about anybody's brain development, Fuentes said. One recommendation that didn't make the final report, Jansen said, was one that would provide direct payments to staff in the child care workforce to combat low wages. Townsend earned caution about the use of subsidies to address workforce issues and questioned whether or not it's sustainable. Other task force members pointed to the recommendation about supporting workforce education, arguing that creating more opportunities for child care workers to further their education will help address the workforce issue in the long term. During the task force, occasionally someone would refer to child care workers as babysitters, Banta said. These people are not babysitters. 85% of your cognitive development happens before age three. Your reading scores, your ACT scores are based on what happened between the ages of zero and five before you even got into a classroom, Banta said. We should treat this profession as if they're surgeons. They need to be celebrated. What will it take for this issue to be solved once and for all? Task force members and child care advocates seem to have slightly different ideas on how to address the child care crisis, but all say it must be sustainable. In a press conference on November 3rd, Reynolds said the child care crisis is, quote, not going to be solely addressed by the government, and the private sector also plays a role in this. Business engagement has been long overdue, Townsend said, adding that it has to be accessible. It's one thing to say we want more businesses to have child care facilities or be involved in providing child care slots, but what does that really mean? What does that look like? What's next? Many of the recommendations require legislative or executive action. Townsend believes the task force recommendations will influence Reynolds' legislative agenda and added that she's hopeful the legislature will look at the report and use it to support what they end up trying to push through. Schmidt said her priority is getting the report into the hands of the public so community members can talk about it with their elected officials and continue conversations into the future. I hope this report gets coffee stains bent up, written on, and printed out more than once, she said. That does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, January 14th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
this is Jim Ralston with an Irish short take from the book Iowa Curiosities. How strange. A prairie in Iowa. In Chester. It may seem strange, but in the place that used to be nothing but prairie, people can now live their whole lives without ever seeing one. The flowers in the prairie grass that one, at one time blanketed the state grew so high that as one 19th century soldier explorer said, you could tie the stalks together over the back of a house. In the prairie's stead, of course, we now have hundreds of thousands of acres of coin, corn, soy, oats, and eventually end up in everything from breakfast cereals to soft drinks to internal combustion engines. But as beautiful as those rows and rows of corn can be, the way the gaps between the stalks suddenly open into slivers of shadow and then just as quickly close as you're driving by, the prairie is Iowa countryside's wilder, more extravagant incarnation. If you've never seen a prairie, be sure to visit the 240-acre Hayden Prairie, one of the largest in the state. The parcel of land is really the size of a small town of a single small farm, but it's big enough that if you walk far enough out into the tall grasses, the gravel roads and the fences disappear from view, and you can easily imagine what it was like here 160 years ago when pioneers started the backbreaking work of turning prairie into farmland. Though the countless varieties of flowers and grasses blooming and growing, from big blue stem to purple prairie clover to yellow star grass, will vary with the season. The prairie is prolific and wildly beautiful, from early spring to autumn. Just a word of caution from our lawyers, though. Tying prairie grass around a horse's back is not recommended by the authors, as serious injuries and grass ends could result. Hayden Prairie is just a few miles south of Chester on CRV 26. That was an excerpt from Iowa Curiosities.